D&D has had many published adventures over the decades, most people only think of published campaigns in terms of the 2000s on. While some people point to the original Dragonlance saga, that's DL1 to D14, as the first adventure path, when the original Greyhawk adventures were pulled together into compilations, the assumption was that they could serve as a full Greyhawk campaign experience. You would start with the Slave Ward series, move on to the Temple of Elemental Evil, then go to Against the Giants, and finally, the Queen of the Demon Web Pits. I'm surprised no DMG has said, if you're out of ideas for how to end a campaign, just go fight a god. Personally, I suggest getting the Deities and Demigods Handbook, especially if you have the Cthulhu Mythos in it. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is a fixed point in time that we cannot alter. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. In 2021, they made me head Gnome, but that's not really anything you need to concern yourself with. <laughs> I'm Jared. I'm the review Gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games that we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be talking about future campaign ideas. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. I don't have anything too major to report for my campaign journal. Only one game was able to happen. The other one is, like, life is complicated. <laughs> I just wrote a whole article about scheduling difficulties on Gnome Stew, so yeah. you can go read that to understand why this thought was this, my, on my mind. Uh, but we did get to play Night's Dark Terror, and we got to play it in person, which is super special. There was, there was also a lot of meat because Tristan fired up the smoker, and <laughs> we had brisket and sausage, so it was, it was pretty special. Uh, but as a result of playing in person... <laughs> We didn't really get that far. <laughs> we, we made a little bit of progress in finding the den of the wolf skull goblins uh, and made it into like the entrance. But we kind of reached a point where it was to keep going would have taken us too much further into the evening. So we basically kind of put a pin in it where we were and we'll pick up probably with combat right away when we start <laughs> the next time because uh, our barbarian rogue only is he's he's on his last rage and if he doesn't get to hit something soon it's gonna go away so we want him to have that rage <laughs> please embrace your rage <laughs> please go find something to hit in our campaign i did get to run it again last time it's very nice um having our gaming schedule Yay! like kind of starting to realign itself so we left off on the cliffhanger with the banished night hag Everyone got ready to do their ready to action to hit her. <laughs> uh, she popped back into existence and it looked really good. And then she got to take her turn and then everyone got a little bit worried again. <laughs> it's not my fault. Uh, Kazina got a crit. Oh yeah. Kazina like laid into the night hag. Kazina did what? Close to 60 points of damage in one hit. Yeah, it was it was a pretty gnarly hit. But after everybody had their ready to action, then she started hitting people and then people got nervous again. But it all worked out. They managed to take out the night hag. Now, 
The other thing that is funny is they are in the Night Hag's lair, so I had them roll to see how quiet they were being because there were other creatures patrolling this lair. And so a pair of Void Ogres wandered into this fight. And I thought it was funny that um, Jeremiah mentioned that this keeps happening in your dungeons where things wander up on you. It's like, that's because when something is nearby, I roll to see if it hears you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the fact that sometimes you don't run into things and you don't want to chain everything in a dungeon. But at the same time, I'm sitting here looking at this going, you're 50 feet away from these things and you were just stabbing things. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, he did insist we take a short rest, (laughs) which is what allowed the night hag to start the fight with us on her terms. Mm hmm. The uh, Void Ogres were actually a pretty nasty encounter as well. Yeah, that was totally going to be a TPK. Yeah. They were adorable, but <laughs> it was it was totally going to be a TPK. We decided that the Void Ogres were an old married couple. It was, it was kind of funny. Until we killed one of them. Yes. But yes, Void Ogres can spit poisonous substances and they have tentacles growing out of their back with a 15 foot reach. So even when people were retreating, they were still getting slapped with tentacles. And um, it wasn't a good time. And at this point, though, because Kazina had fulfilled her oath to um, previously um, Sister Barkchur, now referring to herself as Mother Barkchur, she sent her quickling to come get them. And all they had to do was run outside to a tree that was right, waiting for them to use it for tree stride. So the quickling ran in, threw a few daggers at one of the ogres, and was trying to nudge everyone to leave. You almost lost Marin in that uh, in that fight because Marin went down because he wanted to be the rear guard that defended everyone from the ogres. Yeah, he's a little st- he's a little on the stubborn side. <laughs> one of the ogres was afraid of the void dragon. Um, that was that was amusing. Yeah. And finally, um, after they took out one of the ogres, um, they managed to retreat back to the uh, back to the tree, and they made it back to Mother Barkshore's, uh hut. She offered to um, take in anyone that wanted to become part of her new coven that she was going to form. <laughs> Nobody took her up on that. We politely declined. Yeah, they did, however, take her up on being able to take a long rest in her hut. <laughs> Um, The next morning, there was a group of vampire minions waiting for them outside. And they were emissaries from Auntie Bloodsack, who was not happy that uh, Mother Barkchewer had dissolved the coven. That was a pretty easy encounter for everyone. Yeah. It could have gotten a little nastier if the uh, minions had any chance to hit, because the vampire minions not only do damage to you, but they lower your maximum hit points. So that's a nasty ability, but then you had Ivy go first and fireball them. Yeah, and they they rolled really low on initiative, so we all got to go Mm -hmm. before the vampires did. Yeah. And that was mainly just to, you know, send out these, you know, messengers so that you know that Anti-Bloodsack is out there and she knows what's going on. So, you know, maybe she becomes a factor before they leave the island. Kazina's sister let them know that there is another woman trapped in Mother Heartstopper's lair. So now that they have rested up, they're going to go back in the lair, deal with that last ogre, and 
whatever else is in that lair to free the other <laughs> woman that was kidnapped. Yep. And that's where we left that off that session. <laughs> yeah, we probably could have gotten her the last time if we had approached the whole lair of the night hag a little more <laughs> smartly, but what are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, I have my idea of what would have worked had you wanted to go in there incrementally, but I'm just running whatever, yep. <laughs> reacting to however you want to want to take on this lair so no you 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 did what made sense the party was not necessarily in alignment on how to approach <laughs> the whole thing so that kind of shot us in the foot a little bit a little bit <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the dungeon master's workshop moving on into the dungeon master's workshop today we wanted to talk about the future campaigns that we would be interested in running because, of course, even when you have campaigns that you're currently running, you're still thinking of the next campaign you're going to run. Always. Always. <laughs> and we're going to talk about why those campaign ideas appeal to us. So how far ahead do you start thinking about your next campaign? I am always thinking of a next campaign. <laughs> I can't shut that down. I think the main difference here is the point at which the next campaign is like nebulous general ideas of, oh, this is a thing I'd like to do to where it becomes a little bit more specific. Uh, like, I want to see this particular kind of fight or I want to use this particular kind of puzzle or this environment. You know, the more that starts to crystallize, that's when it starts feeling like I'm actually planning yeah. the next campaign. Like I'm pondering ideas all the time, but I really only start thinking in terms of campaign when either a kernel of an idea lodges itself in my head and won't let go, or I know I'm next up in the rotation to run a game, <laughs> at which point, oh, I actually need to start taking some of these ideas and putting some work into actually turning it into a campaign. Mm -hmm. The ideas are always there. <laughs> it doesn't turn into an actual campaign until you start working on it. I would even say... The few times that I haven't already been preloading other campaigns before I'm finished with a campaign, it's usually an indication that I need to take a break from <laughs> me DMing D&D &D for a while. Yeah. And it doesn't happen very often, but if I don't already have like the next thing and the next thing going in my head, it's usually a sign that I don't got any next things. I need to take a break and recharge. <laughs> when you start thinking about your next campaign, do you think in terms of setting? theme or some other defining characteristic? Sometimes I think in terms of setting, um, there's a lot of settings that I want to use and a good setting is going to help um, recommend certain themes to use with that one. There are times I don't like to run campaigns in the same setting back to back because if the PCs did something momentous, I don't want the next characters to feel like they either have to one up what the last characters did or that if we don't like immediately access what the last characters did, it feels like they didn't do anything important in the setting. Yeah. It feels like if you let that settle for a while and play in a different world, a different, you know, all of that, it gives it a time for all of that stuff to be like, this is a thing that happened and it is a fun memory. And now we can make another story. Right. Theme is kind of tricky. Um, sometimes I think the theme does emerge from settings. Um, I've run some games with some strong themes, but I want those things to come from what makes the settings unique. I ran an Eberron game 
where you all work for a newspaper in Charn. And that's mm-hmm. not something I would try and emulate in the Forgotten Realms. Because even though there are some cities in the realms that have like broadsheets that are more or less like newspapers, they don't feel like Eberron where the newsrooms are meant to be more like these, you know, 1920s, 1930s era newspaper, you know, uh, bullpens, you know, where you're getting that more modern feel to them. Eberron slash Sharn, you can lean more into that Sherlockian theme and and plot lines where there's steampunk going on you still have all your fantasy elements but you can lean a little more into some of the 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 modernization stuff oh yeah definitely i've been in groups that started with some character guidelines that can divine a theme like i've been in a group that did an all dwarf campaign or our uh, disney princess curse of strahd game But I think you need to be really careful with themes like that and make sure everyone isn't just okay with it, but is enthusiastic about it. Yeah. Because if they're not enthusiastic about it, the theme is going to weigh it down and kind of get in your way instead of being something that helps you move forward and have energy running the campaign. I generally think first in terms of setting, you know, what world is this game going to be taking place in? And then I start with a framework. Now, I suppose that the framework could hint at themes that the game will be touching on, but I really, I really can't start working out theme or even specifics of the campaign until I know who the PCs are. Mm-hmm. For me, the game is all about the player characters and their ties to the world. And until I know who those player characters are, Mm -hmm. I can't really dig into the meat of what that campaign is going to be. I still will set up a framework, like with the depths of Zendrick, it's you are all competing to earn a spot on this um, expedition to Zendrick. Mm -hmm. You can be whoever you want. Your reasons for wanting to go to Zendrick are your characters, but... These are the things you need to agree to to join this. And it gave me a great cast of characters. Mm -hmm. Um, Same thing with the Veterans of the Gauntlet. The Veterans of the Gauntlet was you all fought in the last war as part of a mercenary company, the Red Gauntlets. And you have now returned to Sharn to celebrate the fifth anniversary of a momentous battle that the mercenary company won. This means you had to be willing to fight for Brayland Mm -hmm. and you're willing to come back here. After that, it was like whatever they wanted to make as far as their characters went. Mm-hmm. And that, I find, usually gives me enough meat with the PCs that I can then take that campaign idea and run with it further. And what's really funny, as we we're talking about this, it reminded me that when we did our Session Zero for this Midgard game that we're in now, my big thing was, hey, you want to have a dragon for a patron? That was cool, and that worked out. But theme-wise, the back of my head was doing, this is going to be kind of an espionage campaign. And I'm glad I didn't try and force that theme, because, like, immediately (laughs) we blew that Immediately. We are secretly working. No, we're not secretly working for anybody. We are overtly working. No, no. (laughs) If you wanted an espionage campaign, that needed to be stated up front, because there was no way... Marin was going yeah. to be part of any sort of espionage game. <laughs> he says he's not a paladin. <laughs> yeah, I loved that last session. I've never played a paladin in 5e. Yes, you have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
You just haven't used paladin mechanics. <laughs> so when you start thinking about your next campaign, how far into the future do you imagine the campaign? Do you think about an opening arc, a big finale, or just a general direction? So for me, it kind of varies based on if I want to run adventures that I'm planning myself or if I want to run a published adventure. If I'm running a published adventure, I really do want to see it through to the end. But if I'm running a campaign where I'm making the adventure content, I usually think in terms of the initial story arc and then checking in with people at the end of that story arc to see if they want to keep playing. And then I'll think of the next story arc and then start, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking, how do I connect these two story arcs into a bigger cohesive theme? I got myself into trouble with the Veterans of the Gauntlet campaign. To be completely honest, it was it was the campaign I started to teach myself how to better run campaigns because mm-hmm. I had flaked out on a few of them before that. Yeah. And I ended up getting a little too excited and ended up tying this great large prophecy to the six PCs that I had. <laughs> Each of them got marked with a tattoo. And a prophecy on an artifact of creation that they needed to recover. (laughs) And everyone loved it. The problem was, is getting the campaign to each of these artifacts was long and involved. And there was a flashback to first level, but I took them from fifth level to 11th level. And we got three of the six (laughs) artifacts. and. This was partially my fault for A, having them literally scattered across the entire planet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they still need to go to Zendrik, Sarlona, and the Demon Wastes. <laughs> and the other mistake I made was not giving myself or the characters an out for when life happened. We very early on had one character that didn't kind of have a player. Mm-hmm. Lorsana, the fighter, was supposed to be played by a certain person, but life had happened and she never really showed up. But we still had Lorsana as a character in the group, and she would very often be played by different people along the way. Mm-hmm. By the time we stopped the campaign at 11th level, Lorsana had had four players. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the original player who never played her. Chris, who played her when he was home from college, another person who played Lorsana for a little while and then dropped out of the game, and then Alana played Lorsana for a while, and then her schedule, it like, it was just like, this character has just passed hands, but it made sense to keep the character in the game because she was tied to the prophecy. <laughs> but that's not fair to the players to say, mm-hmm. hey, you have to take on this character to play in this game. Yeah. And I mean, nobody complained about it that much, but it still wasn't as exciting for them as if they had made their own character. Mm -hmm. So that was a little bit of a problem that I kind of, you know, if I were an author, I wrote myself into a corner. Famous characters that have been played by more than one person. James Bond, Batman, Lorsana. <laughs> I mean, hey, Micaiah has had two players. Uh, Micaiah, the, the wizard who has all of the fireballs, <laughs> uh, was originally played by Julie, who ended up when she had her daughter, she didn't want to play regularly anymore. Mm-hmm. So Chris ended up switching from... Now, see, 
see, we have Larsana, who is played by four different people, and Chris, who has played three different characters. Mm -hmm. uh, because Chris played Larsana, his own character that he made when he was able to join the game full-time, and then he decided to retire the character he made full-time and play Larsana. He could retire that character because that character wasn't tied to the prophecy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was a little bit of a convoluted mess, but I still... We'll, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> I mean, that it does remind me, though, like the way I structured um, the Midgard game that you guys are in now. This is not really a big spoiler, but by the time you finish the island mission, this is another point when I can ask you guys, okay, you've done this. Do you want to still keep playing? Because that's going to feel like another end point where you accomplish something major and we can either jump off or I know something that comes next in my head. Right. How many campaign ideas do you have floating around in your head for the next time around? Is this just the next thing you want to do? Or do you have multiple campaign ideas that you want to pitch? I almost always have multiple campaign ideas that I want to pitch. Like there is not the campaign in my next head. There is a few campaigns in my head. <laughs> Sometimes it is a split between this is what I would do if I'm going to run it and make up most of the content myself. This is a published adventure I would like to do. Um, sometimes I want to focus on one type or the other campaign, depending on how I'm feeling. But I almost always have multiple campaigns that it's like, well, is anybody enthusiastic about this? Is anybody enthusiastic about this? You know, so... Yeah, I have enough energy that I'm interested in multiple campaigns and I'd be happy running any of those. Well, I know you, you pitched something else mm -hmm. before the Midgard campaign, but it never really got off the ground because right. the people that expressed interest ended up flaking out and not really showing up. It wasn't that they didn't show up for sessions. It was just in the beginning stages of that campaign, it was obvious that people weren't as invested or in the idea of getting together. Yeah, when when we were trying to just bounce and collect some ideas from people, it just wasn't coming. Like, And I think some of that is also expectations, where some people are just used to, well, just tell me the first day and we'll show up and start playing. It's like, that's not really what I want. I want to make sure you're invested in it. I want to make sure we schedule a session zero and we do all this stuff so that I'm using your ideas in the campaign. And that might have been that you were we were reaching out to other people, so there were some newer people in that that mix mm -hmm. for me there are infinite campaigns floating around in my head at any given time before we started recording i called it soup my brain is soup and there's all the soup in here but the other thing let's be honest here we're polygamous so my DD campaign ideas need to share space with the other games i also want to run mm -hmm. right now I don't have any new campaign ideas. I have reviving the Depths of Zendrick campaign, probably in the spring, you know, at the forefront of my mind for that. But more immediately, I'm a little more focused on getting a Coriolis campaign off the ground that I would like to run <laughs> in the near future. So, you know, D&D needs to share space in my head with all of these other games that I really want to get to the table. And I very much want to get my One Ring game wrapped up with a satisfying conclusion, too. So <laughs> I understand yeah. that. Um, do you think in terms of whether you want your next campaign to be a published adventure versus something that you primarily create from whole cloth? 
There are times when I could do either. I really kind of like X or Y adventure that just came out, but I also could do this that is, you know, like a campaign that I've already had outlined in my head. There are a few times, like I think the next time I run D&D, I do kind of want to use a published adventure. It's not because I don't like making my own content. It's like I do kind of like switching back and forth once in a while because, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but when I run a published adventure, it doesn't so much take me less work, but there's less, I'm trying to think of the proper term, but there is less um, mental energy being spent on what comes next in the campaign and more that I can devote into how am I going to customize this thing from being a generic adventure that was written to being customized for this group and these characters. You still have to put your creative effort into taking what is in the published adventure and tailoring it to what you need to bring to the table, but mm -hmm. that still takes a little bit of the weight and responsibility off you from having to create everything whole cloth. Yeah. I mean, that, that, and that's the thing, like this last campaign that we've been running, I got a whole bunch of ideas like right in a row for stuff that would take you guys almost entirely into like um, tier four. Yeah. If we, you know, if we wanted to keep going, I don't always think of those men that many ideas. Sometimes it's only like I can think of stuff that will take us into tier two, you know, so I'm not as worried about that with this campaign, but I don't necessarily have like the huge you know, drawn out epic campaign in my head for next time, which is why, you know, published one's probably pretty good to recharge that side of things while still, you know, doing my tinkering and figuring out, oh, I want to swap out this monster instead of this because I think this would be perfect for this and things like that. When I originally was answering this question, I was like, no, 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 no. I, I don't tend to gravitate towards published adventures. <laughs> and then I started thinking about it because I have run Dragon Heist I have run Icepire Peak, and I really would like to get uh, Keys of the Golden Vault to the table. Mm -hmm. I think what it boils down to is most of the time I'm not thinking of setting up campaigns in terms of published adventures. When I ran um, Dragon Heist, it was honestly because I had just started a campaign where the PCs were based in Waterdeep. Mm -hmm. And immediately, like, <laughs> right after we ran session zero slash session one, all of a sudden this book dropped, and it was like, oh, I, I could just <laughs> use this. This will actually work really well. Um, and so that's what I did. With the kids' game, I used the published adventure more because, and, and this is not to throw any shade at the kids, but I didn't want to have to put the effort into creating something from whole cloth for players that I wasn't sure were going to really appreciate it yeah, or understand the care that was be being given to the game that was being presented to them. Mm -hmm. So it's like running them through a published adventure meant I could gauge where their interests were without feeling like I was wasting any of my time by crafting this artisanal campaign designed <laughs> just for them. Yeah. You know, if I'm running for my Saturday group, uh, totally it's artisanal campaign all the way. I'm crafting <laughs> something that is specifically geared for those players and the characters they have brought to the table. Mm -hmm. With the kids, I mean, they really just wanted to bonk things on the head with shillelagh, okay? <laughs> 
So now that we've done all of this preliminary discussion, uh, what are the campaigns you want to run in the future? All right. So first off, I am going to go back on everything that I was just saying about maybe wanting to run a published adventure because if I could get this going, I would still like roll back and do this and do this straight out of my head. And that is, I really want to run a Seas of Odari campaign, which is the thing that we tried to get together before we ended up doing this Midgard game. And I love the setting. Basically, if you haven't seen it, it is a setting that all of the nations are on their own separate islands because there was a cataclysmic event that basically just ruptured the continent. So most of the travel between different nations involves getting on a ship and sailing places. And that means there's lots of pirate adventures and there's I'm on a boat that yes. And there's lots of aquatic adventures. Like if you go to explore a dungeon, which is still part of the setting, you probably will get a map to a secret Island that has this dungeon from before the continent sundered. So you sail to the dungeon. So you have all, you know, instead of your overland tromping through the, you know, through a forest to find this ancient tomb, you're going to be sailing to it. And you might have to, you know, worry about where sharks climbing onto your ship. And I really, really want to run that. I made, I'm, I'm a massive sucker for pirates and I love all of that. <laughs> I already have a modified version of a campaign that I had originally run in Dragonlance, which was the PCs inherited a ship, but they only got the deed to the ship if they could make all of these deliveries in all these different ports all around the continent and come sail back into port within a year's time. So it gave me a chance to have them sail to all these different cities in the Dragonlance setting. And it is not quite the idea that I have that I don't want to spoil is it's similar to that. And it gives you that, you know, that it gives me the opportunity to say, here's a bunch of places you could sail in Bodari. So you get a wider view of the setting. It is similar to that idea. And we had a lot of fun with that campaign in Dragonlance. And I think the difference that I put into this one would be fun. I think one of the biggest hurdles I have with running Vodari is that there is no roll 20 implementation yet. So it's, it, I don't think it would be too hard. Like you could still get a good feel for the setting. If everybody just played player's handbook species and classes but you are missing out on some of the neat stuff like the gunslinger class and some of the species that are native to that setting and some of the subclasses that are in there. You could probably set it up really easily in shard. <laughs> oh goodness. But I mean that, that I think that has been the biggest thing. And I think there's actually a kind of a bottleneck with people being able to get their stuff, you know, translated over to roll 20 right now. Do you know, are they working on it for Seas of Vidari? I A few times I have heard them say that it is it is on the list of things that they want to do. And there's a Fantasy Grounds version of it. I don't want to and I know Fantasy Grounds is... I, I know. But I think Fantasy Grounds actually has people that work there that will go out and say, hey, let me convert this for you. Whereas Roll20, you have to find somebody that knows how to do that conversion and hire them to do the work yourself. So... I could be wrong about some of this. This is just kind of what I've heard secondhand about how all of that works. Absolutely no shade on anyone who uses Fantasy Grounds <laughs> for their VTT. I just know that it's not anything I want to invest my time as a GM into getting set up. 
Also, I'm very sorry about your unity. <laughs> <laughs> so, does it count if I talk about picking up a previous campaign? Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, as I mentioned earlier, I am definitely planning on picking up the Depths of Zindric campaign again. Probably in the spring sometime. We may want to do a pellet cleanser campaign because Tristan is about to restart um, the City of Cowls campaign, which is also D&D. And as I said, we're polygamous. We play a lot of <laughs> games. So players may not want to roll right from City of Cowls into Depths of Zendrick. Uh, we may want to do a short something else in the middle. But I definitely plan on bringing Depths of Zendrick back to the table. Mm -hmm. I have also had my players express interest in trying to revive the Veterans of the Gauntlet campaign. Because, mm -hmm. like I said, we made it to 11th level. They had completed three of the six epic quests. But that one is going to be a little bit of work. In part because I had been running it in Pathfinder. and Four of the six characters were very specific Pathfinder classes mm -hmm. that do not have good translations in 5th edition as it stands. There are versions of the Gunslinger out there that might work. You could probably get away with the Cavalier by doing something. I mean, there's a subclass for Cavalier and for Fighter. It's just not as not quite the same. Yeah, it's like the important thing for that Cavalier was being able to have their mount. Mm -hmm. Charlene was another character in that campaign. Mm -hmm. His mount was a tiger. <laughs> so it will be important to be able to get that flavor back. Another character was a witch. The witch is just not doable yeah. with anything that's in 5e right now. And the other one was the oracle, which you could kind of shove that square peg into the round hole of a cleric. Yeah, or depending on the type of oracle, you could maybe use a um, divine soul sorcerer. Yeah, that might work. Ferdarg did drop a lot of fireballs, just like <laughs> Ivy does. <laughs> so I have heard rumors that Kobold Press's new version of 5e has a witch class. Yeah, the well, at least the um, the revisions of Deep Magic that they're putting out it is going to have a witch class in it that is supposed to be compatible with 5th edition, but also forward compatible with Tales of the Valiant. So I'll be interested to see what that witch class looks like. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely worth looking at. And then there's some other complications there, too. We ended the campaign with them trying to teleport back to the main continent from Ice White Island and blowing the roll on the teleport, which <laughs> meant everyone got scattered throughout the land, which could be a good way to restart the campaign and try and figure out how everyone gets back together and also deal with characters who might be missing. Mm -hmm. Because the other complication at this point is one of the players for that group is not playing in that group anymore. He's on the alternate Saturday. And it just, it, it, it's complicated. <laughs> like, I don't want to leave him out, but at the same time, I don't know how this is going to work. Mm -hmm. So there you go. <laughs> okay. So I have another one that I potentially want to run. And 
this stems from me watching uh, Vikings Valhalla, like both seasons all the way through in a couple weeks. <laughs> and then I went back to playing uh, Banner Saga, the video games. And that has got me to where I really would like to get Raiders of the Serpent Sea to the table. That is an adventure that is done by um, Ar- Arcanum Worlds, I think. Um, they did the Odyssey of the Dragon Lords and... If you are not familiar with that company, they actually publish their books through Modifius, but it is it was founded by people that worked at BioWare that wanted to do 5e supplements. And, you know, it's people that worked on things like Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights and games like that. that Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> and they decided they wanted to get into the... Um, get into the field of publishing stuff for tabletop games after having worked on all of these Bioware, you know, RPGs. So I thought that was really neat. I liked um, Odyssey of the Dragon Lords when I read through it. I didn't get a chance to play it, but this one is all inspired by Norse folklore. And it is basically like there was a previous world and a version of Ragnarok happened. And everybody that's on this world now has come from other worlds and, they're basically trying to stop this from recurring in this new home that they have made in the last few hundred years because this world kind of came together from parts of other worlds. They tell you, you could have people from other D and D settings in there. If you really want to, they have um, a thing that they do called Epic backgrounds where in or Epic destinies, where instead of taking a background, you have this very specific purpose tied to some major event that's going to happen in the campaign. Interesting. Yeah. And if you do certain things in the campaign, like, you know, if you kill this dragon or if you recover, you know, this legendary sword, you get certain rewards that are built into that epic background. It is really interesting. I would love to get a chance to um, to run it. Um, it actually, unlike Seas of Odari, unfortunately, or Seas of Odari, um, there is a Roll20 um, implementation for it. So it's... It is something I'm very interested to see. And um, I think the roughest thing about it is it is while the setting is nothing like Eberron, the concept is very like Eberron where there aren't a lot of other powerful wizards, you know, like mm. your wizard would probably be one of the most powerful wizards once they start adventuring and gain some levels, you know, so there's not a lot of falling yeah. back on anyone else to do things like you are the heroes here. Which I mean, I kind of like. So we had to have this, I think I've talked about this Mm -hmm. on the show before, but we had to have this conversation in the Zendrick game when uh, one of the characters was like, oh, you just need to get greater restoration and that'll fix that problem. It's like, who is he supposed to get greater restoration from? (laughs) Yeah. What do you mean they don't have anybody that can cast it? They don't have anybody that can cast it. You are probably the most powerful spellcasters they've had contact with Mm -hmm. in a long time. And there's maybe one or two people in Stormreach who could cast it. Maybe. There's not like, we're going to gather enough, you know, for the material component for Raise Dead and then beg a cleric to do it. Like, no, if your cleric can't do it, nobody's doing it. (laughs) You know, like it was just supposed to be this poignant thing that this character suffered this lasting damage from the Mm. Yonkis trying to turn him into (laughs) a a snake-like creature. He had claws and scales on his hands. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, just get a greater restoration. That'll fix that. Like, wasn't the vibe I was going for here. Yeah, he suffered plot damage, man. (laughs) Stop trying to fix it. 
I don't have anything specific. Like I said, it's all soup. It's all soup up here in this head. <laughs> but I am very curious about Planescape. It is a setting that I missed when it originally came out, mostly because I was avoiding D&D like the plague. <laughs> but it is a setting that has intrigued me ever since I learned of it. And the little bits, I've, I've never really dug into it. But knowing that they're coming out with the book makes me hopeful that maybe it could turn into something that I could run in the future. It could make for a fun urban-ish campaign, but with a very different twist mm -hmm. for what the world these characters live in is like. And of course, it's Planescape. They could make anything from anywhere and we're good to go. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm glad you threw this on the list because I, I just told you before we started recording, it's like, I watched that video about the Planescape <laughs> thing, and now I kind of want to put that on for my list, but I don't want to uh, add another one for my list. <laughs> but you know, one of the things that's always fascinated me about Planescape is there are these gate towns, and the gate towns are things that are in the outlands, which are like mm -hmm. the neutral plane in the outer plane. But these gate towns are built on portals to one of the major outer planes. So you'll have things like Ribcage, which is the gate town to the Nine Hells. And those place, those towns have always fascinated me. Like that whole idea of you're in this town that is adjacent to hell, but it's not quite <laughs> hell. But things can still come through and you know, you, there's still this influence there. And what does that look like when you have a bunch of mortal people living in this place that is so heavily influenced by one of these outer planes. And one of the things they said in that video is that a lot of what they're focusing on is detailing the gate towns because the gate towns were mentioned and they come up in some adventures and stuff, but they, there wasn't like a supplement that mm -hmm. was just about the gate towns in second edition. So that was one of the things they focused on in this version. So I'm really excited to see that. No, I mean, I, like, I love the idea of sigil you know, as a city, mm -hmm. you know, and just the concept of being able to go anywhere. It's an idea that I would like to, to explore further at some point in the future. I, I both love and dread the idea of the Davos, which are the, like the people that work for the Lady of Pain <laughs> administering the city because they speak in like pictograms that you have to solve. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that concept. But I'm like, wow, if I think I have a hard time thinking of NPC dialogue now. Yeah. <laughs> okay, since I, I partially co-opted yours there, um, <laughs> let, let's get back to um, me mentioning Dragonlance previously. <laughs> I really did like Shadow of the Dragon Queen, the recent Dragonlance adventure that came out. It was interesting because one of the first 5e adventures where they have actually said in the book, you know, some things don't live in Kryn. So you may not want to include them. And if you really do want to include them, we're just letting you know that's not something that's assumed to exist in this setting. And, you know, a lot like 4th edition, a lot of things in 5th edition, they've been trying to kind of say, well, we put it in a book, so we don't want to tell you not to use it. But Dragonlance is a much more stylized campaign that has more constraints to it. I think things with settings like that have been a little swingy mm -hmm. over the history of D&D. I remember things being much more strict. Mm -hmm. Like I remember in the 90s 
when Planescape was coming out, I was not playing D&D at the mm-hmm. time, but I remember hearing some of the people around me who did play D&D kind of shun it and roll their eyes at it because can you imagine being able to play anything? Yeah. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and so I appreciated the freedom that came with the advent of third edition and saying, play whatever you, you know, play Mm -hmm. whatever mix of character and class you want to, because that was part of the reason I fled from second Mm -hmm. edition. Um, And then in fourth, you know, like when Eberron came out and they very specifically said, Hey, if there's a thing in D and D you can make this fit in Eberron. We're okay with that. Mm -hmm. Fit it where you need it to. I really appreciated that. But at the same time, there are settings like Dragonlance that are intended to have a very specific feel and theme and sometimes adding in things that don't work with that just brings down the game for everyone else. And you you just got to find that balance between allowing your players to express their creativity, but also making sure the setting stays true to itself. Like I love Heron guns and I would be fine. Even if I ran a season of Odari game, if you wanted to play a bunny buccaneer, I would be absolutely <laughs> fine with it. I don't really think that fits Dragonlance that well. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, and that, that would be the thing is if I were to run it, some of those hurdles that I would want to make sure people were okay with is like, for example, some of this is based on what they did with third edition Dragonlance, which is bards because they can heal people and potentially you know like bring people back from the dead at high enough levels bards are actually divine characters in Dragonlance. um they're basically like a specialty priest you know that sort of thing Mm -hmm. i would probably say that barbarians that don't have a god that they're devoted to probably shouldn't take anything that gives them overt supernatural powers because that's you know, it's, it comes from somewhere, and if it's coming from that primal energy source, it's probably coming from a nature deity. Right. Warlocks, in the way the adventure was presented, it basically says that anybody that's an arcane caster can take the test of high sorcery and become, you know, one of the members of the orders of high sorcery. But warlocks are kind of like the textbook definition of what Dragonlance has always said were renegades, like people that didn't learn magic properly and are working outside of the system in order to be able to use magic. So I think I kind of like that idea of warlocks being renegades and the idea that maybe if you're playing a warlock, you're going to have to be a little more surreptitious about using your magic. If I was better with music, I would take the song Beauty School Dropout (laughs) from Greece and reframe it to be Wizard School Dropout as a story of why somebody became a warlock. I've always loved that idea of somebody that was either just not patient enough or just not good, not as good as they think they are. And that's why they became a warlock. It was just like, yep. Oh goodness. So as we're talking, did any more campaign ideas pop into your head? Ah, like I said, it's soup. Um, (laughs) You know, it's like, there are so many ideas there and it, it really, for me, depends on the moment in time when I need to pluck those ephemeral vague ideas out of the ether and bring them down to something I can present to my players. Mm-hmm. You know, until that moment happens, it's all just wibbly wobbly <laughs> RPG stuff. I know when I start really thinking more seriously about it, 
I end up doing like, um, like I, I do a campaign standards document, which Ange knows she's seen these mm -hmm. before where I'm basically saying, use these books or don't use these books or whatever. And, you know, we're going to use this optional rule or not use this optional rule. And I will start doing that for campaigns. The closer I get to like, even if I don't end up running it, like I, I will admit I have a whole bunch of Dragonlance stuff that I've been putting together ever since I read that <laughs> book. And I don't think that's necessarily going to be the next thing I run, but it might be, but it's just like, as I think of things and how I would want to run this campaign, I've been kind of putting that together. I very much dislike putting creative energy into something that doesn't end up getting used. Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually the same way about creating characters. Mm -hmm. um, I have friends who will sit there for days making characters. <laughs> and I'm just like, I don't want to put the creative energy into creating a character that I'm not going to play. I'm actually kind of with you when it comes to characters. Like, I can't make up a ton of characters like that are disconnected from knowing a specific campaign I'm going to play them in. There's so many failed games, <laughs> characters, campaign ideas, you know, in, in my history that I just like, I'm not going to start putting effort into it until I know I'm closer to doing it. <laughs> With the Depths of Zendrick game, it was very much a situation of, I started having this idea form in my head it's been a while since I played Eberron, and I think I'd finally reached the point where I could move beyond the Veterans of the Gauntlet campaign mm -hmm. and not feel I was like betraying the legacy of that campaign by starting something new. Yeah. And the group for that game, we were we were kind of in a situation where one of the players had started a traveler campaign, which we were all very excited about, but then his life kind of got a little wonky <laughs> with work and he just couldn't put the effort into that campaign like he had wanted. So it basically went from a nebulous, hey, I think I want to do this after we're done with the Traveler game to, hey, I really can't put the effort into this game like I want. Can you start your game? And it's just like, oh, Jesus, okay, yeah, I guess I could do it. <laughs> um, you know, so it put me from, you know, like, moving from that ephemeral idea in my head to let's start slowly putting this together to oh my god we've got a go time and i need to have all of this ready by <laughs> next tuesday uh-huh you know or whatever it was just like it went from really fast from a idea to we're bringing it to the table or the virtual table as it may be a lot quicker than i expected I believe I remember hearing these phases when I was just talking to you about this. Like, I have an idea for this thing. And then all of a sudden, I'm going to have to do this thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, one of the big blockers to me was, like you mentioned, with Seas of Adari and not having the material in Roll20, I didn't want to run D&D on Roll20 mm -hmm. um, because I knew how much it cost to get all of the core materials to have players be able to just make their characters on the fly. So I'm like, that was one of my hurdles. I really didn't want to do that. Um, so I started researching alternatives, and that's why I ended up trying Shard and finding it was a much, much better alternative for my very tiny pocketbook. <laughs> you know, it, I'm still, you know, I still pay the subscription for Shard, but I don't 
feel like I have to shell out literal hundreds of dollars to get all of the core books for my players. I can just add it in as it's needed. So, you know, there's some foreshadowing there with, you know, if you've already spent money on a certain thing and what to be able to run things on a map, but we won't get on that, uh, get to that yet. Yeah, I think I think we, we covered that when we talked about VTTs. My goal is to have a hard drive that my uh, Google Drive that is just as filled up with campaign ideas that I have never used as I have games <laughs> that I have never played on Steam. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's quite the challenge there. I know. <laughs> uh, what do you think? Have we uh, explored our our future campaigns here? I think we've explored our future campaign ideas enough. And I guarantee you, more than likely, what will be run next is something completely different. Oh, yeah. That happens often. <laughs> yeah. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. All right, so every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to the listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. Now, I cannot speak to what this is like, um, because I have not been able to dig into it. But D&D Beyond has recently debuted the Alpha Maps feature, which is a bit like a VTT. It's like the fledgling version of a VTT. Um, this is possibly an indication of where they may be headed with their ideas for VTT. I mean, it, I don't believe it includes any of the, the 3D features they've been oh, trying yeah, no. to pimp, but at the very least, it is a character sheet connected to a map, all that. There is, there are two levels with a monthly subscription. Yeah, you have to have the master's level to use it as a DM. Yeah. Um, what I didn't, I didn't, did you look into it enough to see, do you have to have the lower level to be a player or can you just join as a player? Basically what it, um, what it runs through is when you have a campaign and you invite people to the campaign, that's, what's going to give people access to seeing that map that you can share out to them. Gotcha. If you already have your D and D beyond subscription, it is possibly worth taking a look at because again, it may be an indication of where things are headed there in the future yeah and they did say that anything like right now that's not the case but their goal is that anything that you own that has maps you'll be able to access your maps through that so that's kind of nice that's interesting yeah and there's some generic maps in there too some of the maps in the adventures are not necessarily geared towards a vtt and but i believe there are options to pull in your own third party materials yes so you could bring in your shapeku maps and all of that but <laughs> it kind of feels like right now it's sitting somewhere between albert rodeo and roll 20 mm -hmm. with the stuff that it can do yeah it's more than albert rodeo but not quite what you could do in roll 20 all right so kickstarters are sometimes hard to recommend in this section because by the time we talk about them and the episode gets published the campaign might be almost over but in this case, um, just today, Cubicle 7 announced a product that you can follow now for when the Kickstarter goes live. So I think that's going to give us enough breathing room to actually <laughs> endorse this one or at least, you know, point people towards it. And what it is, it's called a life well lived. It is basically going to be life path rules for D&D &D 5e. 
campsite rules and endeavors. So a lot of this is going to be about creating backstory and also dealing with like downtime. And I'm really interested in this because I liked what Uncharted Journeys did for Overland Travel and how it really integrated a lot of D&D's skill system into that to where it didn't just feel like make these roles or don't do this. It was, you know, there was some interesting things that it did with like the skills and what they expect different people to do. It was based on the One Ring and how they implemented the journey system from the One Ring back into the 5e version that they had developed. But this version of Uncharted Journeys, they really modified to work with a standard 5e campaign, not the Lord of the Rings. So instead of just kind of hand-waving and saying you can't take long rests, they are saying, well, you can't take long rests, but you can spend hit dice to get back certain class abilities so that if you have more than one you know, encounter while you are making your long journey and you really want to get your, you know, one of your spells back, you can spend hit dice and basically say that, yeah, I got some rest in, so I got this ability back. Because of some of those neat little innovations that they did with the journey system, I am really interested to see what they do with this. Yeah, that, that, I'm curious what that's going to be. I like the idea of life paths. Mm-hmm. They, can, they can be fun to help you flesh out a character in ways you didn't expect. I'm also interested in endeavors and what, like, I vaguely remember them talking about this a little bit, but like, it feels more like, you know, if I want to become a guild master, but it's not just a monetary spend this many days and this much money and you have this title, it's going to have a little bit more both mechanical and story-based emphasis to, you know, like, this is going to be my story for when I'm not adventuring. So... (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. We will include the link so that you can follow it and get notified when the Kickstarter goes live. So moving out of here, we are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. So we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying us, also consider checking out Misdirected Mark Plays. Phil, Chris, Bob, and Jerry play and discuss a campaign they've created and are playing. Now, instead of just hearing them talk about the theory of gaming and game mastering of the games they're playing, you can actually hear what they do at the table. It's come full circle in their exploratory play series, MMP Plays. I would also like to say I have never heard that read so smoothly as when Chris read it. (laughs) I mean, probably because he wrote it. (laughs) We have used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest because we're not on a long journey. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.